I went to go out of my flat and I had this overwhelming sense that if I walked through the, my front door, something terrible would happen. But funnily enough, that was true right. <laughs> in the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. This conversation is a conversation about mental health, about mental health services, mental institutions, about words and about stigma and things like that. So if you experience mental health issues, you may want to be aware of those facts so that you can prepare yourself accordingly to listening to the episode. Because we're talking about things that are stigmatised, the words used are often examples of that stigma. Also, there is some very vivid description of bones being broken in this episode. So people who find that kind of stuff hard to hear should be aware that that is coming. And he said to me... But you were brought here on a 136. And I said, well, what's a 136? And he said, oh, you wouldn't know that. And as soon as the guy grabbed me on my forearm, I felt my bone break. I felt it go, you know, you can feel it go. And I thought, oh, my God. And I said, you broke my arm, you broke my arm. Like this. And they totally ignored me. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Cheryl. Hello Cheryl. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Right, uh, so the first question that I ask everybody is how do you know me? You hosted the Spark Mind in Harangay True Stories event and I was like a five minute speaker. (laughs) You told of my experience in a mental hospital. That's right. I mean, we so we had a we had a kind of open mic section most of that night. We had uh, we'd actually invited guests in yeah. to to speak, and I and I told a story about my my mental health stuff. And so with the open mic, we didn't know we didn't know what was going to happen. And then you yeah. told your story, and your story was I thought a, a really interesting counterpoint to a lot of the stories that had been told that night because yeah. it was it, you know it was a very different side of the mental health system, I guess yeah. that we were that we were getting from that story. And I talked to you afterwards, and and. and stuff and thought right that that would be a really good conversation to have on my show so uh yeah so here we are the second question that I ask everybody is what do you do now well before I was carted off to the mental hospital (laughs) (laughs) I was and I still am office manager of an oil services company mother of two boys who are now at university at the time they were at school and a carer for my disabled husband who's got brain damage Right. That I'm a, a governor of my local mental health trust, a neighbourhood watch coordinator, and a member of Speak Out Against Psychiatry, Mind Freedom International, and the Network Against Psychiatric Assault. Right. The things that you do now have been very much changed by oh, what we're yeah. going to talk about today, really. Oh, so yeah. almost that's like a, a teaser for people to know what's coming up, really, that, yeah. that we're going to go into all of those areas, I guess, in this yeah. conversation. Yeah, my whole life changed completely. Right. You'd had no experience of mental health issues no. or the mental health services no. or anything? knew nothing about what they do in mental hospitals. I do now. <laughs> but I was totally ignorant. Right. I just thought like, well, like, I just thought like these sort of general public that people that are mentally ill are dangerous they need to be drugged up things like that all the things that media tells us so that's where I was coming from I had no idea and after my experience I then met other people and I was completely shocked 
Right. Completely shocked by what I heard, and I believe them. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, there's absolutely no reason not no. to believe them. And then, you know, I was just shocked about what psychiatry does. Right. I couldn't believe it how they pulled the wool over everyone's eyes. You know. Right. For so long. I mean, I think it's a complicated thing, and I think I think there are. I definitely know people who have been helped by various different mental health services, and I. But I'm not saying that, that I'm not saying that the system is 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 in any way fit for purpose. My own experiences, which I'm sure we'll, we'll occasionally get into in this conversation, have not been fit for purpose. So I, I, I totally recognise that with the understanding that that there are lots of different opinions about psychiatry oh, yeah. as a thing. We're going to go into the specifics of what what happened to you, I yes. guess, and then what what conclusions you came to from that experience so yes. yeah how did how did how did you come to be in a in a mental institution yeah so this is 2009 i suppose everything's oh, i don't know whether to give a whole review of my life up to that point i don't know it doesn't have relevance what happened to me previously uh, but in some ways it does because the mental health system looked at those experiences and thought oh, she's had all that happen to her, therefore anyone would go crazy with that. So um, my husband was an alcoholic for about 14 years. He um, lost his job when my youngest son, just after he was born. So from then on, he went straight into alcoholism and eventually got brain damage in 2008 from it. And that's where he is now. So I had that. And obviously I was breadwinner. I had two jobs for about 10 years. Obviously I had to do all childcare, etc. So I had all that going on. And unknown to me, he had invested some money in a company. And not only that, he had guaranteed to the bank a further £55,000. Right. Which I knew nothing about until his brain damage. And I started opening his post. Okay. So... Right. <laughs> so... So that was quite bad. With the interest, that had crept up to about £75,000 by the time I found out. And they were trying to get us out of the flat right. to get their money. We had other debts as well, obviously. Things had built up and I already owed money quite a while. I had credit card debt, things like that. But I was hanging on. Right. I was hanging on, I was working, doing everything. Then some money was going to come our way. And I thought, thank goodness, we're saved. But then I found out that, this was, this was in like 2008, and then I found out that some people were stealing the money behind our back, were sort of stealing things, and I got very frightened that they were going to take everything and we would lose the flats, the, the debts, I mean, just everything would... And I'd been hanging on all these years and it was all going to go belly up. And when I found out that this money was being taken behind our back, I I got really stressed out and I was trying to ring around. to try. Well, I did ring the police at the time and I said to them about it and they said, have you got any evidence? I said, no. And they said, you've got to get some evidence. So I tried to get some evidence. I was ringing around people. But then afterwards I realised, oh, by ringing around people, if they're in, I didn't know how many people were in on this. You know, in the end I found out there were at least three people involved. But I didn't know at the time how many people were in on it. So I thought, oh my God, I've alerted people. And then I got really panicky. And the person, I made it known, actually I made it known that I knew what was going on. And then I was in fear for my life. Right. I thought, my God, I'm the only one that knows about this. 
and if they wipe me out then they've got no fear anymore and so then I got very panicky and I I'd already compiled a dossier of stuff evidence I thought I'd go to the police so I I went to go out of my flat and I had this overwhelming sense that if I walked through the, my front door something terrible would happen but funnily enough that was true right. <laughs> in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I I went back into my flat and I thought, oh my God, what should I do? I'll call the police and get them to come to me. So I was thinking what to do. And then oh, somebody rang me up and spoke in a strange way. So I, I got really got panicked and I pressed, we got an alarm system. So I pressed the panic button, which is supposed to call the alarm centre who then called the police. Right. But the police didn't come. And I only found out later on that the button wasn't working. It set the alarm off, but the button wasn't working. Right, it didn't go anywhere. Just, it just No. Broke. So since nobody came, and I don't know, you know, when you're in a panic, you want people to be there instantly. I then started ringing 999 and saying, please, please help me, please come help me, you know, not being specific. Right. So you so you were afraid that people were going to come. Uh, yes, who, who were, I was worried. Right. Who you, who your husband owed money to, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and that's what you're saying. No, he didn't owe money. Well, right. He would have had money was going to come to right. him, and these people were going to pinch it and be really stuffed. Right. And then you know because I knew about it, they might try and you know. Right. That, I knew they were angry. So you had. Le- they were really angry. Right. So you had le- legitimate fears yes, about people who I may definitely. have done you yeah. harm and harm to your family. You know, I wasn't going to take any chances. And I you, mean, when you look at that, you know, oh, I can't really talk about that. But <laughs> yeah. I've seen in the papers this kind of thing happens. Let's face it. Someone would kill you for a hundred pounds. Right. I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't. <laughs> no. I don't deny that. So. And you, so you were speaking to the police to try and to try and communicate your danger, but you didn't. I wanted want, them to come, and then I would tell them. Right. You didn't want to be specific until yes. they were there for because yeah. you were you were afraid of various people who I was were in, really right panicking. Yeah, and I hadn't slept. I hadn't slept properly for three days, mainly because I went to bed. When I found out, because I'd found out somebody else was stealing who was in a position of authority on the Sunday. So on Sunday night, I went to bed at 11 o'clock, but I woke up at two in the morning in complete fear. Right. And I went and then tried to do more research. And then the same thing happened Monday and Tuesday. So for three days, I had only three hours sleep for three days. Right. I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to turn to. And then, of course, on the Wednesday... This, I just served my son his pizza. <laughs> and I just ate my pizza in the kitchen, just thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And of course, it had dawned on me that I'd, well, I'd signed a document which could have been used against me to carry on pinching this money. And I was thinking, oh my God, what have I done? But anyway, so I called the police several times. Meanwhile, because the alarm's going off, my son comes up and he's going, why is the alarm going off? And I'm saying, give me your phone, give me your phone. He's ringing 999 from his phone. I must have rung so many times. I've got all the transcripts from them, from the police. So eventually the police arrived. But of course, I don't know, maybe they rang my doorbell, but I didn't hear because of the alarm going off. But anyway, one of my neighbours upstairs, he must have let them into the communal hallway. Right. So then they started banging on the door. Open up, open up. This is the police. You know, and I thought, oh, my God, like this. And my son's going, well, open up. It's the police. I went, no, no. You know, because we didn't know if it was the police. It could have been someone, you know, I wasn't going to take the risk. And I'm going, no, no, they're not the police. They're not the police. And by then I was convinced they weren't. 
I called for my neighbour upstairs and he came down and actually he was no help at all. And in fact, he probably persuaded them that I was crazy. But anyway. Right. <laughs> but anyway, so the police said, if you don't open the door, we're going to break it down. And I was hastily trying to ring people. I turned on my computer because I was going, I couldn't get hold of anybody I knew on the phone. It was unbelievable. Right. And in fact, all my other neighbours were out as well. So I turned on my computer because I was trying to go and try and email someone to come and help me in some way. So I was thinking all these things, trying to work it out. My son was getting into a panic. He's going, you're, you know, I, he said, how oh, did you open the door? I said, they're going to kill us. And he said, you're frightening me, you're frightening me. And he said, I'm going back to my room. And I went, no, stay with me, stay with me. Because I thought, if they are criminals, they, if they come in, they will kill me. And then they'll go and kill him and he'll be on his own when he dies. That was my thought. Wow. I, want, I thought we could die together. I really thought they were going to kill me. Because actually, I looked through the, um, the um, peephole when they were saying this, and there was a guy standing there with what I thought was a machine gun, but I found out after it was a battering ram. So right. he was standing there like, I thought, shit, they are going to kill us. So when they finally smashed the door in, I was like with my hands over my head, ready to die sort of thing. And of course, they grabbed me and put me in handcuffs. And then everyone's just standing there, doing nothing and I'm like well, what's this you know what's going on plainclothes policewoman showed me um, a warrant card but I wouldn't know what they looked like and it was tatty and I you know but that was all they didn't sort of say what's the problem why did you ring us none of that they offered me some water so they gave me some water then one of the policemen started rummaging around in my handbag see I didn't think they were the police at this point and they were rummaging around in my handbag and he took my car keys out and he threw them to his accomplice across the way and I thought oh my god they're going to steal my right. car they're going to kill me they're going to pretend that I've gone away and no one's going to know so I was really panicking but I thought I'll stay calm so I'll stay calm I wouldn't tell them anything so by not telling them anything they're thinking loony so they then they said to me oh we're going to put you in an ambulance I thought oh my god I'm going to get injected so, okay. And they hadn't put one of the handcuffs on properly, so I waited. I just calmly walked out through the front door, and the minute I got into the street, I ran like hell <laughs> down the road. They weren't expecting that, because they weren't holding me, and because I got one arm out, so I could run like mad. Right. They came running after me. I'm shouting, call the police, call the police, they're not the police, call the police, like this. But they dragged me back, and then they tried to shove me in the police van, and I was, like, struggling. I wasn't hitting anybody, struggling. They, they did hit, they hurt my side. But then they couldn't get me into the main part, so they then took me around the back and stuck me in the cage at the back. And then I was frantic. I thought, you know, they were driving, they couldn't find the mental hospitals, so they were driving around quite a bit, but I was getting into a panic. I thought, oh, my God, they are going to drop me in the canal and I'm going to drown or something, and I've got the handcuffs on, and I'm trying to get the handcuffs off. In fact, my whole arms were swollen, and, you know, the guy's going, he's going, you're not going to be able to get them off like that, shouting at me through the cage. Right. <laughs> I still wasn't sure, were the police, weren't the police? And I thought, well, maybe they are the police. And I said to him, I said, you know, you're going... I said something about your... You're helping them, you know. Right, and so all like, of these, to all of the way that you're talking to them, stealing the money, right? You know. It's going to make them. I mean, not that I'm defending them. I know. All, but they, like, it's, yes, I know. It's so, it's they so, it's so it sad, wrong, isn't it? It's, it's so frustrating, talking. right? Nobody's yeah. talking to anybody, right? Yes, they're assuming that they put you into a box, and then everything you're I know, doing confirms that. I do. Right. I know, because I mean, the other thing I didn't tell you about is <clears> that when. Because I kept ringing the police up and they weren't coming. I just thought, I knew you have to say something 
you have to put yourself at the top of the list, you know, hmm. like like with hospitals, you know, if you're having a heart attack, you're at the top of the list. So to make myself top of the list for them to come out, I stupidly said, <laughs> stupidly said, thought, how can I make them come out quick? I know if I make out that, definitely something's happening. So I said, stupidly said to them over the phone, he's got a knife like this. Also, I said, someone's going to get hurt, right? But right. this all got translated in the end. When they came to the door, they thought that I said, someone's going to get hurt. I've got a knife. Someone's going to get right. hurt. And they then wrote down that I was holding my son hostage with a knife. Right. So this all came into it. And or not only that, when they came in, they did say to me, where's the knife? And I said to them, there is no knife. If I'd said there was a gun, you would have stood outside for ages, you know, because I knew this. If I said they got a gun, they wouldn't come in, but with the knife, they would come in. So, you know, but I'm saying that meaning I was talking about somebody else with a knife, right? Yeah. So I was saying to them, I made it up, but they were thinking, oh, she's saying... She's got a gun. No, she, no, she's, no she's saying <laughs> that that she had the knife, but she only pretended she had the knife, you know. Right. But then it all still came all down that she had a knife. And, I mean, in my notes, it got down. Just because nobody actually sat down and said, let's just talk about what just happened now. It was all everyone was inferring things. Right, and they no were one calmed the situation yeah. down and sat and down then, and calmly talked one about of them, it. One of the police officers went up to my neighbour and he was chatting to for ages. And because I've obviously got an alcoholic husband who's a pain in the bum and they can't stand it, and you know. So, you know what I mean? The whole yeah. thing is that... I'm daubed with all of that, you know. Right. So it was all like, so, I know. (laughs) So there I am in the back of the police van and they eventually find them into hospital and they stop and I see it's a hospital. And he's, the police officer's talking to the nurse, the admission nurse. I'm just thinking, oh God, are they going to let me out? They go, you know, please let me out. And then when they did let me out and I collapsed on the floor with relief, I thought, oh, thank God. Yeah, I was going to say, you must have felt relieved. Oh, well, thank God, they're not going to kill me. I'm going to a hospital. Thank God. So they took me into the 136 suite, which I did not know, because actually they had had to put, slapped a 136 on me, which was illegal, because you're not allowed to take somebody out of their house and then slap a 136 on them. Right. So what's a 136 for people who, who, don't, who yeah. don't know? A 136 is if you are in the street and the police think that you've got a mental disorder, they can then kind of like arrest you under the 136. Okay. If they think you're in the street, but they're not allowed to take you out of your house and put you in the street and right. then slap a 136 on you. So that was illegal anyway. If you're in your house and you're misbehaving, <laughs> being annoying, they can do a 135 but I think they have to go to county court first. Right, okay. Before they're allowed to enter your house. And yeah, go that makes sense. So the trouble is, I think with them, having smashed the door down, and then the police realised it was unnecessary smashing the door down, and they said to me, oh, why didn't you open the door? You know, now we smashed your door down. So once I got in the hospital, I thought, oh, they were the police. I thought, right, oh, you know that they're the police. Yes, you, you know, know that you think, at least okay, they were the police. Yeah. yeah, because all the time you're trying to work it. If no one's telling you what's going on, you're trying to work it out, and you're working it out wrong, and they're working it out wrong, and everyone's right. talking cross-purposes. So and then it didn't get... The, 
there's this assumption as well, I think, that they've made here as well. That, yes. That you... You are bonkers. Well, yeah, but well, there's that. But there's also <laughs> the fact that, that you might have legitimate reasons for keeping secrets or for, for, for trying to play the system because, you know, it's not a simple world. And you do... No. Have, and and there's, a, there's lots of reasons to worry about the motivation of people you don't know yet. Yes. Well, um, you can't believe... I mean, people come along to people's doors and say they're the police. Right. And they're going to rob them. I mean, you know... And you will... Say, Oh, right. Well, you know, like the policeman said to me afterwards, he goes, well, you could have looked out of your window and seen our police van. But, I mean, you know, I wasn't going to be looking out my window. And anyway, besides that, would that approved anything? Right. I don't know. And, and it's fair to say you were in a distressed state, which yes. I guess is, I mean, and just that kind of distress, that kind of anxiety. Well, well, yeah, but you could, that is, that. I mean, that is a mental health moment. Like everybody, like people who have mental health experiences, they're not always like long lasting. Sometimes they're a moment. Yes, it's a quick moment. Right. Yeah. And, I and, mean, like in a car accident. Right. Exactly. If you're in a car accident, you might start acting in a strange manner. Absolutely. But people will think, oh, it's a car accident, and they will... But, of course, with me, they didn't know why I was behaving right. like that. And why, it's not... why wouldn't she let the police in the door? And they wrote in the notes... She knows she's obviously crazy. She wouldn't let the police in the door, and she ran away from the police. That was considered to be crazy. Well, mental health, like in general, the, one of the problems that it is there is that people assume that because you have mental health uh, issues, it means you're illogical. Or there's no reasons yes. for those things. That they're, they're often they're there often is. Reasons. That's why people go to therapy to, to to work on those issues, right? <laughs> yeah. So they take me into the 136 suite. They don't tell me it's the 136 suite. The admission nurse just gives me a cup of tea. And I sit there, relieved that I'm still alive. And, you know, (laughs) so I just sit there for ages. And it was hours. I was in there hours, apparently, you know. Then eventually, they're supposed to have a psychiatrist come in first before they call in the other big shots. But I don't think they did that because all I can remember, obviously I wasn't taking notes, but all I can remember is four guys walked in the room, plus the admissions nurse. Uh, before that, they left me with the policeman, and so the policeman had to stay with me, I think, until they came. And I said to the policeman, oh, I, I thought you weren't the police. And then he said to me, be careful what you say. Now, I didn't know what that meant. I now know what he means. You know, if you say anything dodgy, you're going to get locked up. But I had no idea what he meant. I thought, oh, why is he saying that? But uh, so. right, if you if you if you trust the police, uh, then the assumption is that if you tell them the truth, yeah. that'll make everything fine. Yes. I, I, I've known friends who've who've gone into yeah. exchanges with the police uh, with that in mind, yeah. and it's really messed them up for the rest yeah. of the the dealings yeah. with the police. I mean, yeah, if you go into a mental hospital, don't tell <clears> them anything. <laughs> really, whatever you try and explain. It, it looks like you're crazy. It gets seen Whatever. through this kind of, yeah, this filter. This filter, right? I mean, now, oh, well, I know the ropes now, partially. So, anyway, so these four people come in, plus the admission nurse, she sat in the corner. They didn't introduce who they were. They didn't say why they were there. They didn't say, you know, why I was there. They didn't say anything. And the one of them, which I'm assuming was the sectioning doctor, a social worker. So, um,. I'm assuming that was him because obviously he didn't introduce anybody. And so he leaned over and he whispered to two of the doctors, which I didn't know they were doctors. And the other doctor was sitting apart. He must, I think he was the psychiatrist. He was supposed to have assessed me before they even turned up. But anyway, he whispered to them and then just suddenly sort of turned to me and he didn't say anything, you know, just like what happened. So I thought, oh, they're the police. The police have brought me to this place and they are the police. They've come in here 
and they want to know what's happening. So I told them all about the people that were stealing from us. Mm. They're written in the notes. It was very calm, maintained eye contact and all this, and I was telling everything. But for some reason, they didn't believe any of it. (laughs) So, you know, I told them what had been done, what I thought might have been done, but I hadn't finished my investigations. I was still in the middle of it, you know. Then they all went out the room, and I was left sitting there, and then I knocked on the door, and they came to the door. I said, oh, excuse me, look, I really, I've got to get home. And then the social worker guy came out on his own, and I said to him, I've really got to get home because I've left my old computer on. Obviously, that door's broken open and that. And he said to me, but you were brought here on a 136. And I said, well, what's a 136? And he said, oh, you wouldn't know that. And then he said, oh, we're keeping you in overnight. And this was like 2 o'clock in the morning by now, and I was thinking, I was absolutely knackered, you know, and I'd sleep for like three days. So I just thought, oh, okay, I'll just go and sleep in their bed. And then in the morning, I had the day off work, I thought, I'll go home. So I hadn't spoken to my son at this point, but apparently they had rung up my eldest son and they hadn't explained anything to him either. They just said to him they were keeping me in overnight, so he assumed I was going to be out in the morning. Right. And unbeknown to me, they'd written down my husband with brain damage, they'd written him down as my nearest relative. And the nearest relative is the person that can do the 72-hour rule, as I found out now, to insist the doctors release you and or represent you in the tribunal and things like that. So here we have a guy with a 10-minute memory is now my representative, even though I have power of attorney over him. Right. You know, um, so... (laughs) And then when I complained about that, they said, oh, well, we never contacted him. I thought, well, that's not the point. That's even worse, isn't (laughs) it? I mean, if they thought he was adequate to be in that position, they they should have contacted him. I told them as well that he was brain damaged and I was his carer and everything. And they've even written that in the notes. They go, oh, he's uh, the nearest relative. And even the advocate later on said to me, oh, well, no, there's certain rules, you know, he has to be your nearest relative according to the Mental Health Act, which I just think can't be true. Yeah, well, if it is (laughs) true, it's terrible. So I'm no representative anyway, so that was it, you know. My eldest son was... He had just turned 19 and the youngest one was 16. Right. In fact, my youngest one became 17 when I was in the hospital Mm. and he was totally distraught. He was the one that was with me. I bet. Because, I mean, he was already scared before they even came in through the door. I know, because, I mean, I'm giving him his pizza and then next thing the alarm's off and I'm telling him people are going to kill us because I hadn't told the children anything about the stealing. So they knew nothing. So you were keeping... Like, yeah, you were protecting them. Yes, because I didn't want to. I think this is something, I mean... So they had no idea. So to them, it's like one minute she's okay and next minute, what's she talking about now? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're trying to keep them safe. That's yeah. you know, as their parent, you stayed in overnight then. Yeah, I and, stayed in overnight. Yeah. And you thought you were going in the morning. Yeah. But you weren't. No. <laughs> <laughs> what a naive person I am. Well, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people would have believed. You know, believed. Oh, that's what inappropriate you were laughter. There, I was. That, they put that down in my notes. Actually, inappropriate laughter is a sign of mental illness. Right. And I do that a lot. Laughing at I, how absurd life is. I know, is, is, I do is, that a lot. Right. And that was written down as a symptom of mental illness. Laughing inappropriately. Very <laughs> I mean, scary. I'm telling you the story now, so many years later. When I told the story uh, soon after it happened, I would be crying all the way through it. Of course, it. yeah. No, I mean, I, know, I don't... Yeah. I would be crying. I mean, I couldn't... I mean, even now, even the other day, 
I actually told a part of the story that I'd not told before and the pain of that really got me and I started crying again. I bet. I mean, you know, you know. because I think by talk, by telling people, talking about it over and over again, you take the sting out of it. That's what I think. Yeah, definitely. And that's probably how I've survived all this crap I've been through <laughs> all these years. Yeah. <laughs> My poor neighbours, I've been telling them all about, you know, and this and the husband and what he's doing and, you know. Yeah. That morning you discovered that you were not as you were not free to go. You were not going to be going. Yeah, not soon. straight away, no. So I got up and I uh, went. First time I then see the other patients there, but I don't know that they're patients. I just see these people there and look a bit strange to me. I'm a bit wary, you know. Just a bit, uh, they're going to breakfast. Well, you've got all the stigma. I'm going to breakfast but, yeah. and I'm looking around right. thinking, what's, you know, what's this? I mean, as, as you said earlier on, your idea of what people who had mental health issues was before you went in was... Yeah, was but I, I don't know of... if I knew they were mental patients. I don't think we knew they were mental patients. Right. I'm not sure. I just, I just thought they looked strange. So I was just, you know, I just thought, oh, what is this place, you know? And right. I was just a bit... I don't know. I just Disorientated. Weird, yeah. Right. Anyways, I just, I'll be out soon. So I got my breakfast. And I went to the desk and I said to the woman, um, I've got to leave because I'd actually taken the day off work. I had two important appointments. My son, was his A-level results were coming out and I wanted to go along to the school because I thought we were going to have to go through clearing. And uh, <laughs> so I wanted to do that. And then in the afternoon, I had an appointment with a financial advisor that I've been trying to get this appointment for ages and I finally got it. So I was like really pleased about that. So I said to the nurse, I've, I've really got to go now, I've got these appointments. And she said, you'll have to wait till the doctor comes. So I oh God. So I'm hanging on, hanging on, the doctoress doesn't turn up. Then suddenly a whole load of people came into right by the nurse's station, because I'm hanging around by the nurse's right. station. So a whole load of people came in, and I didn't know who they were. I'm a bit frightened. And I realised now that's probably a ward round. Right, yeah. but okay. obviously yeah, sure. I didn't know at the time. There's all these people there, and I sort of said to her, "So oh, you know, I need to go," and 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 she sort of fobbed me off. So then I asked one of these people in the crowd. I said, uh, "I really need to go." Excuse me, <laughs> I really need to go. And one of them, he sort of just over the, his shoulder, he sort of leaned over and he went, "Are we going to keep you for a few days?" And I thought, "What? What do they mean a few days? You know what? What? What right. the shit's going on here?" Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought, "Oh my god!" and so I had to gather my thoughts. You know, uh, you're sent into a what, confusion. Why Why am I being held for a few days? I'm thinking, you know, oh, do they think I'm guilty of all this thing with the stealing of the money and everything? Do they, do they think I'm part of it? You know, do the police think I'm part of it? What is it? You know, you're thinking, what is it? Right. So I went off to a communal toilet to try and gather my thoughts. So when I got in there, there was a guy in there with a big shopping trolley of paint, and he was actually painting the ward. And he painted the ward the whole time I was there. He was always staring at me. Anyway, <laughs> especially because I was writing my name on the walls because I was trying to leave evidence of the fact I was there because I thought they were criminals by then. But anyway, that's later. <laughs> so <laughs> after he painted them. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, so, so I go in there. So he says, you can't stay in here. So he threw me out. So then I went into another patient's bedroom. And I was sort of trying to think, how am I going to do? What's going on? Also, the patient came in. He goes, this is my room. Get out of my room. I said, look, please, please, come just stay for a minute. I just want to... <laughs> I just want to... Work yeah. out what's going the, on. Yeah. yeah, and anyway, he went scuttling off to the blooming nurses station to tell them, didn't he? So I tried to hide in his room, but they found me and they dragged me out and dragged me to the desk. By which time... 
the whole load of the ward round must have shifted off somewhere. Right. So it's just the desk was basically empty. The head nurse, who I later found out was my was supposed to be my nurse, but she never ever said she never said who she was, that she was my head nurse or anything. She shouted to somebody, "Take a bag." Like this, and they wrench my handbag off me. You know, I'm fighting to try and get it back. I mean, you know, a woman's handbag has right. like got everything in it. Plus, I had a lot of notes as well about all the stealing in my bag. Right. And I didn't want them to, because I thought, oh my God, they're criminals and they're going to get all my notes, you know. But they grabbed it off me. That put me in a, bit, a real big panic. And I'd actually previously, I'd signed a form to say that I was going to keep my handbag and I knew the risk of it being stolen, all that business. You know, they make you sign this form. Yeah. You either hand your stuff over for their safekeeping or you keep it yourself, but you have to sign a right. disclaimer for yeah, yeah. in case somebody steals it and, you know, you, you've got it on your Yeah, person. to cover them. Yeah. yeah. So I'd already signed that, the, like, early in the morning or something, or the day before. Or maybe it was early in the morning. So then I went into a complete panic and I, I looked around the ward for help. I wanted to get help, some help. I mean, this was not help, you know. So I was running, And I saw a red button on the wall and I thought, ah, oh, that must be some sort of alarm button. So I went to press it, and she goes, yes, press the red button. And I thought, oh, it's maybe this isn't a good idea, pressing this button. So I think, what can I do, what can I do? And then the lunch trolley came in, because now it was about 12 o'clock, apparently. The lunch trolley came in, I saw my chance. I was down those stairs like a shot. It's on the second floor, and I'm one of those people that run down escalators, so I'm really fast. So I was shooting down them stairs like this. They're running after me. There's no way they're going to catch me. I get to the very bottom... And I don't know where the door is to get out. It's kind of concealed in some way. And I'm thinking, where's, where's the door? Where's the door? And the lift then suddenly opens. And the head nurse, she comes piling out the lift with all of her mates. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, so I think, oh, shit. So I then try and run up the stairs to the first floor to maybe try and get in on that ward or something on the first floor but unfortunately by then the others coming down the stairs have come and I'm then cornered on the first floor landing between the ground and the first floor so I'm so we're all standing there looking at each other like this you know no one's moving no one's touching anybody we're all just standing there looking at each other and I'm just thinking what the hell am I gonna do you know and nobody's saying anything and then suddenly Two people come in the door, which I couldn't see, down on the ground floor. So they come in, and I shout to them, please, please help me, please help me, I'm on Nolan Ward. Now, that was wrong, I wasn't on Nolan Ward, but when I'd rang, I didn't mention this before, I'd rang the police, because I hadn't been able to get hold of my son, and I'd rang the police from the ward on the payphone, and they told me I was on Nolan Ward. There was nothing in the ward that told you what ward it was, but apparently they changed the name since then, so it was Northern Ward, but it was now Danube Ward. Right. So I said, please help me, I'm being held on Northern Ward. And someone in the audience corrected me and went, Danube Ward, like this. But, I mean, even to this day, I've told them about this, even to this day, there still isn't a sign-up to say, welcome to Danube Ward. Or, you know, when you're on the ward, you have no idea what the ward is called. They were just looking at me bemused. I so I looked up the stairs and there was this guy sort of, coming down the stairs, flatten, you know, quite a hunky guy, coming down the stairs, flattening himself against the wall, coming down like this. Actually, he was doing that while I was talking to these people. And then suddenly he grabbed me on that side and then on the right-hand side and then and the nurse on my left, she grabbed me at the same time. And as soon as the guy grabbed me on my forearm, I felt my bone break. 
I felt it go, you know, you can feel it go. And I thought, oh my God. And I said, you've broken my arm, you've broken my arm. Like this. And they totally ignored me. And they dragged and pushed me down the stairs, still holding onto the broken arm. And they dragged me um, into the lift. And the whole time in the lift, I was holding my arm going, you've broken my arm. I was in real shock then. But oh my God, the criminals are really are criminals. And I've gone and told them everything. Actually, I didn't think that then. That was later on when I was stuck in my room. But so at that point, I'm just thinking, my arm, they broke my arm, you know, come on. We got out of the lift, they put me on the ward, and they're all standing there, and then suddenly they started dragging me towards my room, and I thought, oh, my God, they're going to beat me up, they're going to finish me off, because my room was down a narrow corridor, a dead end, I knew that. And I thought, oh, my God. I tried to hook my legs up to try and stop them take me, but they unhooked my legs and they just dragged me in and they slammed the door shut and I thought they'd locked it and I sat on the window ledge absolutely terrified and I was just crying and holding my arm and I was thinking oh my god and I knew they had my handbag with my notes I thought they're they're criminals they're definitely criminals they're going to read my notes I am stuffed they're going to know how much I know Right, and I was just really and even, even though, scared right. shitless. <laughs> I mean, even though coming to the conclusion that they're criminals may sort of sound a little bit kind of delusional, it, it, to, to me it sounds quite a sensible conclusion to I come know. to if they've just broken your arm and they're not giving you any liberty. No. I mean, and, and since you <laughs> hadn't had any sleep, since you were having all of these very strange experiences, like this idea that it's illogical for you to come to these conclusions... <laughs> seems strange to me like I, th- I feel like they should have sat down with you and then explained it and then yes. at that point there might have been some kind of way to to stop this the tensions increasing on, on either side because I, mean, I afterwards I said but the, with the social workers I complained to them I said to them he started it well the police didn't help but he started it if he had explained everything at the beginning if he had told me nobody ever told me the whole time I was there that they right. thought I was mentally ill if he'd said to me, we think you're mentally ill, I would have said, are you ruddy mad? And then the conversation would have been into Truth. what, you know, of course I'm not and stuff like this. Although that may not have even helped you anyway no, because really, of the fact that, yeah. I mean, the, the, the problem is that they should be treating mentally uh, ill people with respect. <laughs> like they should be telling anybody who comes in there yeah. what the hell's going on, yeah. whether, whether they've got mental well, health by issues law, or not. they're supposed to tell you, by law, they're supposed to tell you. Right. But they have their get out clause if you seem distressed. But as I pointed out, in no way at any point does it... Well, I was completely calmed down once I was in the room, so they could have told me. And the reason they don't want to tell you... I think in my case, the AMP, whatever it's called, he thought they had already told me, so he didn't bother telling me. And then right. later on, he, I think, after he'd been in the room with the other doctors, it suddenly dawned on him that I hadn't been told. Because when he came... He was all smiles... In the interview, but when he came out, he was looking sort of quite worried. And he obviously realised that nobody had told me, I'm guessing that, that nobody had told me that, that they thought I was mentally ill. Nobody had told me right. any rights or anything. They've already and it was classified a bit you late. Their head, it was a they? bit late then. <clears throat> suddenly he'd already got them to sign it. They'd all written the forms out. It was a bit late then to suddenly start questioning things. So he probably thought, oh, well... If I tell her now, she'll go berserk. We won't get her on the ward. Maybe they do this to everyone. You know, obviously, if they did tell me then we're going to section you, I would have gone bloody berserk. And right. uh, I would have wanted a lawyer and they wouldn't be able to go to bed. One guy had come from Kent, you know. 
that's what it took so long for him to come. They had real trouble getting these other sectioning doctors in when right. they come all the way from Kent. So they were probably thinking, oh, we'll just let wrap this up. Look, we'll just get her on the ward. In the, we think she's bonkers. In the morning, they'll do all the usual, you know, you're sectioned and all this, and then everything will be fine. Well, of course, they never did it either. You know, the broken arm sort of put paid to that. As it was um, ward round day, I didn't get my ward round, so you have to wait another week for the ward round. So I was left to rot for a week. Right. Till the next ward round. Right. But so I'm in, I'm in this room, absolutely shitting myself. I'm crying i'm calling to god i prayed to god the whole time i was in that room i said please god please god help me please please oh. <laughs> wow <laughs> it's like a sign <laughs> i should turn that out that was a bit dark oh shall i answer it or not it's up to you oh, what's better for you i'll just do it. so how long were you in there for i guess well yeah so i didn't at the time, I didn't know the timings, but obviously once I got my notes, which went missing for four months, by the time I got my notes, I found out the timings so I could write down in my complaint letter the timings. So the timings were... Um, the They broke my arm at 12 o'clock midday, so I had nothing to eat from breakfast. And then at 3.30, the psychiatrist came into the room... She didn't say who she was. She didn't say she was my psychiatrist. She didn't say she was a psychiatrist. She said nothing. She just said, how are you? And since she looked quite kindly, I said to her, they've broken my arm. And there were two people in the doorway, and she said to them, we must get that looked at. And then she went away. And they didn't do anything. They just left me in there. And I think maybe... They'd rather it go on to another shift, because I think if there's any injuries, it's kind of better if they're discovered not on your shift. So mm. they did nothing. So I was left in there. So so I was crying right up until five o'clock. <laughs> and then I thought, it seems sort of quiet outside. I hadn't heard anything for ages. So I thought, I'll go and have a investigate. So I tried the door and it was open. So I sort of crept down the corridor looking and then I got to the nurse's desk and I, I was holding my arm upright because I found it was the least painful to hold it vertically so I'm holding my arm like that and I said to her uh, excuse me <laughs> excuse me <laughs> ridiculous excuse me um I need it my arm is broken I need an x-ray and she said go and have your tea <laughs> So, so stupidly, I just go, I toddle on to, you know, to the dining room with my arm holding it like that. I have to go to the hatch and I have to get my food. So I have to get it with one arm, bring it to the table, go back. You know, and the nurse is watching me. Mm. She's watching me the whole time. And I go and I get get my drink and I sit down and I eat it with my one arm, you know. And then I go back to the nurse's desk and I say, um, uh, excuse me, I need an x-ray. She goes, you have to wait till the doctor comes in. So I'm standing by the desk the whole time, and then eventually a doctor comes in at quarter to eight at night. So, so I wait another few hours. So quarter to eight at night, this doctor comes in, and she goes, um, "I've got to do my ward round first. I said my arm's broken. She says, "I've got to do my ward round first." And she goes off to the ward, you know, and goes to do a ward round. So then I say to the nurse at the desk, you know, you know, please, I really need to get an X-ray. And she goes, "The doctor's already told you. She'll see you after a ward round." So then about quarter past eight, she's finally finished her wardrobe and she comes up and says, my arm is broken. So she then squeezes it 
Uh, luckily, it wasn't swollen because I'm clever enough. I know you to hold it, it up. Yeah, yeah. Because if you hold it down, the whole thing swells up and you're yeah. in agony. You yeah, know? yeah, sure. And obviously it's not that good and then you have to put the plaster on, but, but I know that, but I can't. So I'm holding it up. So it doesn't look, if you look at it, you can't see anything wrong with it. By that point, the bruises hadn't come out. There were later on, when they changed the plaster, you could see the fingerprint bruises on there. And I wish we'd taken a photo of that. You know, yeah, about yeah, right. Proof. We've been good evidence, but anyway, yeah. But you're not even thinking any of this, you know. You don't even know what's blooming up. So she squeezed it. I went ow like that, you know. And then she squeezed it again, but she squeezed it from the other direction, so it didn't hurt as much. And so I didn't go ow like that. And she wrote down in the notes, oh well, I squeezed it, and the second time she didn't really shout, so she didn't think it was broken. And and she said uh, she didn't think it was broken. I said, I know it's broken. I can feel the bone scraping because if I moved it, I could feel the bone going ur, ur, against itself, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she goes, I need a second opinion. And then and she walked out the door and I shouted to her, this is neglect. And she just smiled at me, you know. And I thought, you know, I'm thinking, what the hell's going on? I can't work out what's going on. So um, unbeknown to me, in my notes, she actually rung up another doctor and the other doctor said it was not possible to break someone's arm by squeezing it. Really? So he didn't even wow. come. He didn't even come. Because she told me another <clears throat> doctor would come at nine o'clock. Well, no doctor came at nine o'clock because she rung him up and he said, no, it's not possible. Because it is possible. So you're squeezing two bones in the forearm together. Yes, it's, it's totally possible. And anyway, when somebody and grabs you... And this guy was you, a weightlifter. You right. know what I mean? <laughs> well, well, if somebody grabs you from the side, they're not just squeezing your arm anyway. They're also wrenching your arm. There's, there's all sorts of... Act, you know. Just, yeah, anyway. So I, I didn't know any of that. So I kept going to the desk and saying, when's the doctor going to come? When's the doctor going to come? This went on and on. Eventually, it's 11 o'clock at night. So we're talking 11 hours later. Another doctor comes in, and he's the one that, that actually did a medical on me when I first arrived in the early hours of the morning. He'd done a medical. I said, to him, my arm is broken, and he looked at me, and he didn't touch the arm. He just looked from afar. I said, I need to have an x-ray, you know. He goes, we haven't got any staff here, he said, this time of night. We have to get a special taxi to take you to the hospital and someone to accompany you. And I said, well, if this was all done at five o'clock, you know, when I first mentioned, well, even like at 12 o'clock when I first mentioned it, you know, everything would be open, everything would have been fine, you know. And he was saying, you've tried to abscond, he said. You know, it's right. it's a risk to take you out off the ward or something, you know. And I, I was like, what, you know? And, and I was crying. I'm saying, please, please, you know, because I didn't want to go to bed with it like that. I'm going, please, please. And, and he was shouting at me right, right in my face. And then he, he stormed off the ward. Anyway, so I carried on waiting and then uh, the nurse said, oh, go. Oh, he gave me two pink pills, which, I mean, I'd asked for some ibuprofen painkillers, but I don't know whether they were or what they were. But he just gave me two pink pills. That's all I know. I go back to my bed and lay down, but try not to go to sleep because I think if we go to sleep, the bones could break through the flesh and then that would be more serious. So I'm laying there and I kept going out to the desk saying to her, when's the taxi coming, when's the taxi coming? And um, I said, look, are you mucking me around? If it's not coming, I would rather go to sleep so I can get up early in the morning and start asking for a taxi, you know. Yeah. I said this to her and eventually at quarter past two in the morning... That's, what, three and a half hours after that last doctor come. So he didn't, obviously didn't ring for a taxi. He was waiting for me to go to sleep and then it'd be someone else's problem. 
Right. That's what they were trying to do. So I didn't know any of this, of course. So eventually, at quarter past two, then two people accompanied me to the hospital. And all the way there, they're going, your arm's not broken, your arm's not broken, like this. So when we get in there and they x-ray, and it's agony, <laughs> putting it down onto the x-ray plate was absolute agony. The x-ray, it said it was broken in two places, my right arm. And then they, they said, we're going to have to put you in plaster, but your blouse, we're going to have to take it off, otherwise we'll have to cut it off. After you've got the plaster on, it won't right, go over the right, arm. Right. So, I, uh, yeah, and there was a bloke nurse there with me, and so, you know, I had no bra on either at that point. That's another story. <laughs> Maybe I should tell you that. I took the bra off. Because once I realised they were criminals, I wanted to leave some DNA evidence around so that if they did kill me, at least some DNA evidence. So I'd throw my bra out the window. Oh, right, with okay. DNA evidence on right. it. Right. But I didn't like to tell anybody that because they think, crazy, yeah. But I was doing that, and that's why I was writing my, later on, I was writing my name on the walls and on the curtains to try and leave some, some sort of evidence that I'd been there so in case I was found dead in a ditch. Maybe right. somebody would be able to, you know... I've read these books called um, Worst Case Scenario books, and I've read books about if you've been taken hostage and everything, things you should do. So I was bringing all my hostage training. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, but, but, but if you do that within the mental health system, it's a, it's a very different look. It looks very different from in an actual hostage situation. Yeah, yeah, right. No, but I thought then they were holding me hostage. Well, you, were they, were they, I think they, they were. were going, well, I they mean, were. you can say they that were. they were in, they in were. a way, because they didn't, you know... Video is called kidnapped, kidnapped by psychiatry on the um, internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, I was doing all the right things, as in like hostage situation. You know, because I I realised certain uh, early on that the nurses were just there, kind of like holding people, and there was like a Mister Big who was giving them instructions. Right. You know? So I kind of knew that situation was going on. Well, it's structurally was... very similar to yeah, the crime yeah, situation. Yeah, it's just it's 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 so... the state. <laughs> so I was scared shitless. Yeah. So they put me in um, plaster, and then I was taken back to the ward. And they say, I mean, then they had, and, and so they finally actually did die. Like they had, they finally yeah. noticed that you had, they had broken your arm. Fourteen and a half hours after they'd right. done it. I mean, it's disgraceful. It Absolutely is disgraceful. Yeah, yeah. And the worst, and after that, the worst thing is nobody ever came on the ward to interview me to. You know, to find out what happened. happened. I mean, a broken arm. You would think, they should be there straight away. Who did it? Um, is this woman in danger, you know, from the staff? Nothing, nothing. In fact, I found out, I didn't even know there were things called serious incident reports. And in fact, they wrote the serious incident report. They wrote it, I think, two weeks after, because I'd already left the hospital by then. And they didn't interview me about it, just interviewed the nurses, they gave their opinion. And then that was it, you know. And the, the outcome of that was they need more training in restraint. I didn't even look at the fact that, you know, all the denying of treatment for a broken arm, none, none of that was even looked at. Right. You, your arm was set in plaster, but yeah. you're still in... In an elbow cast, in, right. which is you couldn't then comb your hair. I couldn't put my hair clips in. I couldn't wash, you know, it was very uh, hard to wash and then your that hair. Made, and again, that then... So then I was looking like the mad witch of what's... Right. It, you know, so so it, by the time my the children came as well... You know, I was sort of drugged up, hair all over the place, in a hospital gown because I had no other clothing. They basically, they, they basically made you <laughs> the look... The blanket round my shoulder, right. you know. I was already looking like... What's that? 
What's that tramp guy? <laughs> right. <laughs> He's already looking like They'd that. already made you look like a, a severely marginalised person. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my legs were getting a bit hairy because I didn't have any shaving. Right, and all of, all of those <laughs> cliches, all of those things around <laughs> m- mental health... I was looking suspicious. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> are put on sort of by by society anyway, you know. Um, but yeah, so yeah, you were conforming to the oh, to the yes. image that people like to present of, of people who are mentally yeah. ill. Yeah, so funny. Right, and 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 I guess you met other people in there. Maybe, maybe we should we should question whether they all were all should have been there. I guess from your experience, I was scared them to start with. But then when I got friendly with them, they were nicer to me and helped me out more than the nurses. Because um, I did, because I did try to escape three times in all. (laughs) And every time I escaped, obviously something worse happened. Right. You know, to me. Like, you know, the second time I tried to escape, they then held me down and injected me in the bum and knocked me out all day. So, and then the next time after that, they started putting me on regular drugs but they hadn't By diagnosed now. you with anything no, at this stage. No, I mean, this is very I know, strange. I know, I know. So then they were drugging me up, but I, lucky I spat the pills out. Right. Because I just thought, well, because I knew if I refused, because the first time I refused, and once you refuse, they inject you. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to refuse them. Right. I just took the pills and spat them out. Right. When I was away from the station. The first time, because I'd been reluctant, the first time they checked my mouth and everything, lucky I hid them quite well so they didn't you know they weren't bothered so then after that I just pretended I really wanted the pills and then spat them out after but I was scared the whole time I was in there that they would know I wasn't taking the pills right you know because I thought if you're I think it's a human rights issue that if they're drugging you up so you can't think anymore you know that is terrible yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's terrible. very different taking medicine consensually in discussion with your with 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 a therapist and coming to a conclusion together yeah. about what's best for your mental health yeah. than being forcibly given yeah. medication when you've not even been diagnosed. No, no, it's really the because the nurses. I was pissing them off. Keep saying to them, "I want to leave." And, you know, and also because they've broken my arm and they're trying to gloss over that, you know, the quicker they got me drugged up, the quicker I would then not be able to think straight and Mm. hopefully they get away with it, you know, and I would start maybe, you know, some of the drugs would then start making me have psychotic episodes, which they do do to people. So once they've done all that, I would then be looking like the uh, typical mental patient and they'd be in the clear, you know, who's going to listen to her. Right, and and you met typical, I guess... Actual typical mental, yeah. mental patients, and 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 they were friendly to you and helped you out, right? Yes, unfortunately, one of them involved me in his fantasy, so I was believing him. Unfortunately, because the way he was talking right. is that he was going to help me get out. I get, yeah. and I thought, oh, maybe he's someone who's going really going to help me get out, but he wasn't. He was in his own world, so that was that was a shame. But anyway, but he was good. In the, <laughs> he was good though. In that he gave me his Bible, which really, you know, I've still kept it. I did offer him when I left to offer it back to him because they wouldn't let me have a Bible, and they, right. I asked for a Bible, and they wouldn't let me go to prayers because you know I go to Sunday. I mean, I church I've... on Sunday, and they wouldn't let me go out of the of the ward because you know. I was so they wouldn't let you practice your religion either. No, right? No, they wouldn't give me a Bible, but he gave me his. 
you know, so I was reading that. I've had experiences of visiting friends in in, in mental institutions who've been there voluntarily. I mean, you, you get that that situation where if you have got mental health issues uh, and you're you know got severe uh, psychosis or whatever is going on, you, you're better to voluntarily go in and be sectioned because if you voluntarily and you'll know this more than more than most people but if you voluntarily go in it means you can get out again not uh, necessarily ease. no 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 not, <laughs> not often if you say i'm leaving they go right right we'll just slap a section no 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 you. i agree i wouldn't even i wouldn't go anywhere near there i would do anything no i, I understand and anything. i understand i really do understand that position <laughs> but i also understand that 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 I guess at times being institutionalised has probably saved friends of mine's lives. At the same time, when I went into those institutions, I did not, you know, that they weren't. I saw a lot of the 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 problems that you're talking about as much as as much as as much as anything else, right? Yeah, I mean, if someone wants a place of safety, it should not be there. That is not safe. Right. You need another. We need other places of safety, and that's what we want. I mean, we want things like open dialogue, satiria houses, peer-supported houses. Right. You know. Yeah, and I think what they've got is wrong. No, yeah. Sure. And they've got all the power. I think people should have choices. I mean, I I know mothers whose children, you know, obviously adult children, are being taken to these places and drugged up, and they don't like it, and they have no say in it. It's disgusting. You should have a choice. You should be able to say, "I want to take my son, daughter out of this place." and put them in this other healing centre instead. And you should be able to do that. People should have the choice. Yeah. I mean, I would not want to go in that place. And of course, when I was in there, when I was going for my checkup with my arm, when I was still in there, and I was worried they wouldn't take me for checkups and I could lose my arm, I was really scared about that. Right. Because obviously things can go wrong. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I, you know, if you're not getting treatment for a medical issue, lose then, yeah. my right arm, it wasn't too good. And when I was in there waiting for the taxi to go back, the nurse said to me, um, they will give you ECT because I was annoying her. And I thought, oh, my God. I said, they don't do that anymore. And she said, we do it all the time. And I was scared shitless because they'd already, they'd broken my arm. They'd injected me in the bar. I thought, they can do anything. Right. They can do anything. They can wrangle it so I end up on the ECT and that's electroconvulsive therapy yeah. and electric shock therapy is the other thing that you know, can I was be completely unprotected in there. There was no protection. Mm. There was no one to help and me. And people don't realise that that still exists. Yeah. And I guess you didn't until that moment. No. Right? So that is, when I came out of the hospital, apart from having to deal with all these other things, debts and stuff like that, and all this other crap I was dealing with at the time, apart from all that, I decided to research ECT and uh, I went on the internet and I found it was still done. And I found out about the FDA in America. They were told by Congress to test ECT machines for safety on human beings, and they hadn't done it. Hmm. And this is, I think they'd been given it in 1976 to do it, and they still hadn't done it. Right. And they were, they were then asking the general public and psychiatrists, should they test them or not? You know, they've been using them for years... You know, of course they're safe. They've been using for years, you know. And so why don't we just slip them out of class three, dangerous, and put them in class two, then they won't have to be tested. So they went to the public to ask them this question. This was about the time I came out. And in the end, it was everyone voted for having them tested. You know, even though they had 50-50, 50% psychiatrists were all saying, yeah, let's move it into class three. And then 50% of, like, psychotherapists, things like that, they were saying, like, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
So, and they had all these testimonies of people who've been damaged by ECT. Yeah. You know, you can see some of them on the website. They haven't put them all up there, including mine. They didn't put mine up there. They've only put 238 up there. And so they still haven't tested them. This was back in what, maybe 2011 or something. Right. They still have not tested them. They've done nothing about it. So I guess the things that you... when So from this experience, you learn two things, I guess. Like you, you learn... Or oh, three things, if you include, about the existence <laughs> of, of ECT. But the other two things that you kind of learn i guess is how little human rights is accorded to people when they're in when they're when when they're when they're for whatever reason incarcerated and you also i guess learn the images that you'd had of what somebody with mental health issues was was slightly changed as well because you you you, definitely right i have met people and when they tell me what's happened to them i you know i want to cry you know, and I think especially some of these poor teenagers, they get, you know, you know, all teenagers have a bit of anguish and everything. And, you know, you go through that dodgy stage, don't you? You know, and these poor people, they might have had like, with due to stress, they might have shown this sort of a quick sort of psychotic episode, which might have gone and that be the end of it. Right. If treated, you know, in a kindly way, but instead they're pumped up with these drugs and then that's their life ended. Yeah. And and the stories they tell me of them being, you know, put in seclusion, heavy men throwing them on the floor, injecting them. I mean, is that therapeutic? I no. don't think so. And these people are broken. And then you find out they're on disability now. They've been on the drugs. The drugs have made them ill. You know, they're going to die 20, 30 years earlier than everybody else. Um, they've had no chance of family life. They've just basically, their life has been ruined. Right. And I just think it's just and they've got away with it you know if you went in a hospital with a, a condition and the minute you got in there you started getting worse and worse you know that people would say hey what's going on here but you go into a mental hospital and you suddenly get worse and worse due to what they're doing to you everyone goes oh well that's the illness you know right and, <laughs> right and it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy I just think it's disgusting and the whole thing and i think my god and i'm worried that when i get older you know the old, know, old people's it, homes may be similar. Re- no, you're well, apart from that, yeah, they do give access <laughs> psychotics to old people in the homes, but also in my health trust, the elderly people are more likely to get ECT. Okay, so you know, right. if you're being a bit annoying, basically, they give it to you when you're annoying, yeah, <laughs> right? This, this idea that the job of somebody who is a patient or ward of the state or whatever or a crit or even criminal whatever the, the idea is that their job is to make every to, to make the people looking after them like comfortable and happy and if they're doing anything slightly annoying yes. their rights should just be completely taken away well and also it's to have control i guess isn't yes. it like, yeah it's made their job easier yeah and i guess control. they know that they, they don't won't... look at why is this person upset you know right. it could be like a urine elderly people it could be a urine infection and they they know that the public will also not be like will not that they know that they have kind of license to treat people this way because the public don't think those yeah. people deserve rights yeah. and I'm not to say that the public I don't I'm not saying that the public are a unified opinion and or or to say that if they really that it's as clear cut as that but because we present mental health in such a way within society that or or even criminals all of these people are still humans they still have deserve proper rights you know yeah i mean i hate the word mental illness i try not to use it and we haven't got really anything to use instead and we say mental distress or extreme mental states maybe well mental health issues is what i say but even that (laughs) is is... i don't like it because it, it suggests there's something wrong with your brain and there is nothing wrong with your brain 
all it is is that you have had some sort of trauma, something like that. I mean, normally, uh, you've had some trauma maybe in the past or now, and these are just symptoms. You can have any symptoms. Some people decide to control their eating. Some people have the psychotic episode. You know, some people go lock themselves in a room in a depressive state. You know, we all have our own way of responding. You know, like if you punch somebody, you know, someone will behave in one way and right. the person will behave in another way. You don't say, all right, that's sort of crying syndrome from being punched and that way, you know. Right. You know what I mean? Well, and I don't then, know. Then why call, why tell people there's something wrong with their brain and then you don't... You're not correcting things in society. Well, I think it's more... I mean, I do think that there are some people who have... Um, who have, what well, if you like, think... I don't think... Things wrong with their brain is a complicated word. The word wrong is... A, well, that's but, what they say with right, chemical right. imbalance. Right, but, 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 but I think pe- there are people who do have chemical imbalances. Like, I no, know... No, I don't think well, so. Well, OK, that, that's, that's, that's your opinion. And then I can understand why, based on your experiences, no. you wouldn't think that. I know people who... I mean, m- 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 my aunt takes antidepressants and it has made her not not kill herself since... Uh, and that was a consensual thing that she decided to but do. But you don't know. I mean, she might be all right on her own. Well, I mean, she did. Actually, she did try to kill herself. They do affect. So so before she went on to antidepressants, <laughs> she did. Uh, I, I believe her experience as much as I, I believe anybody else's mm. experience. I'm going to trust her uh, testimony about her own mental health issues just as I would um, you and or any anybody else. But, but what I'm trying to say is whether there are chemical imbalances or not doesn't mean that the, the person, any person should be treated without rights. Yeah. It doesn't mean anybody should be treated like there's a... The, the, and, and we all have chemical imbalances in our brains. That's uh, that's like a, that's what that's what being a human is right we have hormones pumped in cool, here and there or, like, like all of these things the happening time. right so so I, I do agree it's much more complicated and I'm, I, I absolutely believe in a really completely different mental health system than we have whether or not there are people who have chemical imbalances there definitely are lots of people who have mental health as a result of trauma like you're saying and those people should you know uh, it won't be solved by by pumping them full of drugs, yeah, either. Yeah, I mean, you've got to solve, solve uh, society's problems. That's where it's all coming from. I mean, most of the people diagnosed schizophrenic actually were abused as children. You well, know, so if you ignore that and think, oh well, we'll just drug people up afterwards. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, again, I, I think well, schizophrenia is a really complicated... Well, it's not really. It's a woolly diagnosis well, anyway, isn't it? You could get 10 schizophrenics in a room and none, well, none of them share the same symptoms. No, I and mean, that's... just a well, little... That's, that's the truth posh. about that's well that's the problem with diagnosis is that, 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 that you're right. It's opinion. Well, yeah, <laughs> and gathering together, it's men. I want to say white middle class men in a in a room deciding on what's going to be a disorder or not. Right. I mean, I believe in self diagnosis <laughs> much more. I believe if you if you if you come up with it, sometimes it helps you to deal with your own issues to have a name for it. Right. To 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 be able to say I ha- I, I experience anxiety and depression has been really useful for me controlling those things. If somebody came in and um, <laughs> said, "Well, this is exactly what you have: uh, depression level five five six three, and you need to have this kind of treatment as a result of that," then you have no choice in the matter. You just have to do what I'm saying. Then that would not be that would not be cool but it has been cool if you like to mm, to, well, to diagnose myself to understand my own position and I think that you can diagnose yourself with a doctor you can have a discussion about it and you can say well that fits with what I feel so I don't like the whole like diagnosis thing but um these labels 
No, I agree but, that labels are hard and yeah, problematic. Yeah, because the thing is, I think they're only used in America. The whole thing is that you, it's for like the medical insurance. You have to have something that is written in the book, otherwise you don't get. You know, yeah. it doesn't your treatment, doesn't right? And, and and people should remember and also benefits. Right. I mean, you're not going to get. I mean, especially now, Mind have these day centres, and one of my friends, she she has not been diagnosed. She chooses not to. She sees what happens to people that do get diagnosed. But she used to go to this day centre, and she was allowed to go in there and enjoy facilities and talk to people. But when she went another time, suddenly, I think Mind had taken it over. And they said, oh, no, you can't come in unless you have a psych diagnosis and a psychiatrist. You're not allowed to use a day centre, which is totally wrong. Right. I mean, I, I agree that that's problematic. And, and, and with, with, with all of these... And access to services, you can't get help unless you get this diagnosis. You can't get your money right. unless you get this diagnosis. So you're in a bit... Well, and I, I, I thoroughly <laughs> agree that the, the di- diagnoses are problematic because because we have so much stigma around these issues, then yeah, absolutely. If someone gets a diagnosis, they can get treated in a completely different way. Yeah. But also we and have when to... when you get a job, right. you say, oh, that's good to read it, right. <laughs> But we also, we have to remember that, that in the in the book that you're talking about, the... the, the uh, DSM-5. The, the, right, the, the DSM-5. <laughs> the ICD... Previous Previous versions of the DSM, it, right? Previous versions of the DSM included homosexuality as a mental illness, so right? There's loads. Lo- so, 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 so we do have to remember that when these diagnoses are created, they're created by, like you say, white men in power, and those that those can have terrible effects on on people. And who we decide is well and who is yeah. sick is is a, is a massively political thing. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not challenging that. Because I mean, you know. I don't want, but I, but I, I guess I'm just representing a little bit of the experiences of of people I know who have had more positive experiences of mental health system. Although I would say that even the people I know who've had the most positive experiences would still have massive critiques across the the entirety of their service, and yeah. they have not been in an ex, as an ext, in extreme situation as you of being someone completely outside that system <laughs> thrown massively into yeah, it not even in a way how that's it works. right. And the worst part of that system, you didn't go to a GP and I have know. a discussion about <laughs> medication. You got thrown right into a, a mental health a ward. nightmare, right? Sort of nightmare. How did you get out of that ward? Oh, I was so lucky there because obviously my children didn't really know what was going on. And because when they went came to visit me on like the Friday, by then I'd already been drugged up. You know, as I said, I looked like some sort of maniac, and I was sort of like, and I was like saying to them, "Oh God, you know, get me out of here." I was saying, "Get me out of here," you know. And you think now a lot of people say that, and the relatives go, "No, no, no, you're fine," you right. know. But really, get me out of here, right. you know. And in fact, my son, I had a booper insurance you know my son was trying to get me into a boop hospital which would have been good to get me out of there Mm. you know whether it would have helped or not I don't know but anyway after I've been in there six days an advocate came in and I was lucky really because he usually comes in on the Tuesday morning which was when I was actually in the hospital having an x-ray but before I'd gone in I'd managed to get on the they had a computer on the ward and I managed to get on the computer and I got into my emails, but I only had a few addresses saved online. All, all of them were saved on my computer. So there was only a few people I could contact while I was in the hospital. And one of them was a guy, 
because one of my jobs was selling goods door to door and I told one guy who was my customer, <laughs> I told him I was in the loony bin. Wow. And unknown to me, he was a director of the advocates. <laughs> wow. Unknown to me. Unknown to totally out of the blue. So I didn't know this and he didn't tell me either and he didn't tell me then either. So then this advocate came in on the Tuesday afternoon. He was he came in in the morning, but I was at the hospital getting my arm seen to, the second checkup. And he came in on the afternoon, which he wouldn't have done if he hadn't been asked by my friend. Right. And he said to me, he said the name of this guy, and he said, he's told me to see you. And I'm thinking, you know, what? You know? Yeah. And because I, I didn't trust anybody at this point, because obviously, who could I trust? So this right. guy's coming, he says he's an advocate. And, you know, and then he said, then, then he t- mentioned about some rights. And I just thought, hmm, what's this all about? You know, they're trying to trick me. And then... He didn't tell me about the. He didn't tell me the full rise. Didn't tell me about the seventy-two hour rule or anything like that. All he said to me, I said to him, he said to him, "What do you want?" I said, "I want to get out. I want to get out." I said, "I want to get out." I said three things. I said, "I want my toilet fixed because my toilet had been broken. I'd poo in it for ages." Uh, <laughs> I don't want my toilet fixed. I want my phone back because they'd stolen my mobile phone. And I said, "And I want to get out of here." So, the getting out of here, he said, "Well, you have to go to a tribunal." I said, "Right, yeah, I go to a tribunal, yeah." So then he gave me a big list of lawyers. He said, pick one. And I thought, is this a trick? And I just went, I had that one. <laughs> you know, I didn't trust him. Because right. he mentioned this guy's name. I think, why did he mention this guy's name? What's, you know, who can I trust here? Sure. Said, this whole thing is all bizarre. I mean, I understand why you would not trust anyone at this point. I know. I know. I couldn't trust anybody. So I used to stand by the door trying to catch anybody coming in to tell them, please help me get me out of here. And of course, you just look like some loony, aren't you? Yeah. And I realised if I shouted out the window to people, please help me, I'm not going to get anywhere. So Often rational experience. <laughs> looks very, yeah, I'm just thinking, uh, shit, I'm in a really bad, bad situation here. Yeah. I'm in such a bad situation. So anyway, this guy sets the ball rolling. So I've already been in there a week, which is annoying, but he sets the ball rolling for the tribunal, which takes another week. You know, if this had all been done at the beginning, I could have been out by then. So he sets the ball rolling. Meanwhile, it was on my employer... On the fifth day, my employer found out where I was. They didn't know where I was. I hadn't turned up for work. They're ringing my mobile, which the staff had pinched. They're thinking, where the hell is she? They didn't know until my sister eventually found out. And my sister got hold of me and she said, look, I better tell your employer you're not coming into work. They'll wonder where you are. Right. And she, she said, shall I just tell them you've broken your arm? You know, not say any more. And I said, I'll tell them everything. So she rang them up and told them everything. And they were in complete shock. They couldn't believe it. So they were trying to ring the hospital. They were getting through, they were getting through to the ward. And then he, my boss was shouting, are you stupid to the nurse on the ward? You know, and he was trying to go the booper route as well. Because I'd booper. I didn't, now, I didn't have booper at work. So I was paying for it privately anyway. But he had a firm's booper. So he was just going to get me into a booper hospital as well. But right. he didn't know what was going on. He was trying to get me out. Just get me out of there. Into a hospital where you just have some control over what you're, just, was going was, on with you. Because you're paying for booper, right? He was going that route. And then... But also the tribunal. And I said to him, right, well, I've already set the tribunal in motion. So then he said he would get a lawyer. So he got to the company lawyers. The company lawyers found me a really good mental health lawyer. And then they came round on the Thursday. It just takes time for you know. They right. came round the Thursday. Um, the nurses were listening in, you know. And so then the, I said, the lawyer had already got the tribunal thing going. I thought I wasn't sure. I didn't trust this other guy. And then on the 
and I had the ward round on the Thursday and my employer came to that. In fact, the hospitals, the nurses were saying to me, oh, you don't want your employer coming to the ward round because they're going to be talking about real personal things. You won't want them to hear those sort of things. And I was like, oh, God. And I thought, no, they're my only chance of getting out of here. Right. You know, so I said, yeah. And so they came onto the ward round and um, my boss had said to me, just be really calm on the ward round. But how can you be calm on a ward round when you know that if things go wrong, you may be in there like a month or something? I was just shitting myself. Mm. I just, and I was like, trying to be calm, but you can't be calm. And in fact, apparently other people on the ward round thought I should stay. But I think, because luckily, because of the broken arm, I think they realise, you know, they're in trouble. So they want to jettison me right. as quickly as possible. It's, it's the broken arm. It's the fact that you've yeah, got your got employer, employer coming employer, in on your side. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All if of I these things that, if you, yeah, exactly. If, if you I were, didn't have any of that, I would have been stuck. Right. See, so if people in the mental stuck. health system don't have those things as well. Stuck. So, yeah, exactly. That was a narrow escape. So then, immediately, they let me out for the Thursday afternoon. But so I rushed home to my flat, but I had no keys to get in because my son had already taken everything because he was worried everything would get stolen. Mm. So he'd taken all my keys and everything. So I got to my... I only just had a few belongings in a bag, you know, like a purse, a bit of money. My boss gave me some money for a taxi. And I went to my flat, but I couldn't get in. I had to go and go back. I had to go back. It only gave me so many hours leave, and I had to go back because, I don't know, things might have got worse if I hadn't gone back. So I went back. I didn't want to go back, but I had to go back. And then on the Friday, the doctor, she didn't want to completely release me. She's worried about her neck, you know. So, because I said I needed to be released because I had to go on Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> I had to go on the Tuesday. I had to go and confront these people that were stealing from us. Right. You know, I had an appointment and everything on the Tuesday. Right. But she wouldn't let me out. She, she 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 let me out for the weekend. So on the Friday, she let me out on a Section 17. So I was out all Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Monday was a bank holiday. It was August bank holiday Monday. Notting Hill Carnival, which mm. goes around that hospital. But you haven't been charged with an offence. And no, you haven't been I diagnosed know, with... Any kind nothing. of mental what health issues. So I hadn't attacked anybody. Right. I'd done nothing. I didn't even attack the police when they were dragging me to the van. I wasn't attacking them. I was just trying to get away. I didn't actually hit anybody. I didn't turn around. If I was that kind of person, I'm not a violent person, but if I was a violent person, if I was a bloke, right, and I thought they were going to harm me, I probably would have punched them. And then where? You'd be in worse trouble. Right. So I did none of that. So there's no, they can't even point the finger at me and say, you did this, you did that. I did none of that stuff. <laughs> you were you were you were going back and forwards. You were being let out for a few days. And yeah, then you had to so come they let back. me out. Yeah, so she let me so out bank holiday Monday, but I was had to come back on the Tuesday for the tribunal. Was the Tuesday? But she said to me, "Come back early. Come back about eight o'clock in the morning to see me before the tribunal." So presumably, if I hadn't done anything dodgy in the time I was out, you know, set fire to the place or something, she would then let me out and two of my friends came with me and just said oh she's fine and everything like this she actually let me out she cancelled everything so she sort of before the tribunal even went ahead and I've since heard that in the tribunal you've got hardly any chance of getting out anyway because they have so much evidence against you no one's going to listen to you you haven't got a cat's chance of getting out so anyway she said I was free to go. She cancelled the crisis team. Because obviously when I was off at the weekend, the crisis team kept coming around to make sure I was taking the tablets. And knocking on my door right. and, you know, I was just scared the whole time. They were just going to suddenly 
make some excuse and drag me off. I was even sleeping in the kitchen right. because I thought if they break down the door, I'm going to whip out the How back exactly door. are you supposed to reduce your levels of anxiety <laughs> when all of this stuff is happening? It does, oh, as somebody that experiences high levels shit. of anxiety, I can't oh, even I begin to scared. imagine I how I would so be in this situation. Scared. So scared. Really scared. Yeah. Yeah. So so she released me, no drugs, no, you know, because she said to me about the drugs, she said that they'd suspected I wasn't taking the drugs to the crisis team. And I thought, well, I should I tell the truth, total truth here? And I said, well, you know, I said, well, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't taking them when I was out and I wasn't taking them on the ward either. But I was a bit worried about saying that because I thought if you ever get dragged on the ward again, they yeah, might look in the nose and think, oh, and then you're definitely going to get drugged up. So was anything on your, like, record, like, from this? Like, are you official? have you been considered, have you been, have you been diagnosed? I know you don't like diagnosis, but has have they even given yeah, you a diagnosis? unfortunately, yeah, the bitches, which um, I've been so busy, I've not been able to um, fight it. I said I was going to fight it but they said oh they said to me oh you can't because you should have got a second opinion at the time so it stands but you can write a letter to um you can write a letter which will go in your nose that you disagree with it yeah so I was discharged and then the psychiatrist said she wanted to see me like a week later and I agreed because I wanted to tell her what I thought but my lawyer said you don't have to go see her at all now you've been completely discharged you don't even have to go see her Mm. but I wanted to go and see her just to tell her what I thought and everything about what everything and I didn't even blame her but I should have done because she was part of the problem as well at that meeting a week later she said to me clearly you have no mental health issues she said that to me but then later on when I got when I got the my notes with the discharge note and all that they put down that I was discharged on drugs I've got to also contest that which you know obviously when I was discharged I was not on drugs I was discharged with no drugs Mm. so that's still on there so you know I'm too busy and they wrote down that I had adjustment disorder with psychotic features now I you know at the time I just thought oh I don't know old tosh and they um, that was at the beginning of my notes the first psychiatrist had just written there adjustment disorder with psychotic features question mark you know as a sort of and since they'd lost my notes for four months after I left, she couldn't actually write down my notes or discharge note until she found the notes again. So, I mean, she probably thought, oh, oh, yeah, look, I'll put that down. Mm. You know, or maybe she didn't do it. Maybe somebody else did it, you know, because they've got to justify if they say, oh, she had nothing wrong with her. You know, yeah. maybe they give everybody a diagnosis. I mean, it's not a bad diagnosis as diagnoses go, but it's still a diagnosis, and I don't think I should have it. Mm. And, what, you know, what is that crap? Yeah. And even even the numbers after it are not correct. Right. And that doesn't exist. Adjustment disorder of psychotic features does not exist. Adjustment disorder exists. Right. Well, psychosis is a very with psycho- yeah because like hard thing to diagnose anyway. I mean, it's it, if I mean I've 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 been with people who are experiencing psychosis who've believed that they're you know Jesus Christ or whatever they've believed. I didn't believe moments. anything like that. But you didn't have any of that. Kind I, of thing. I was talking. You about... thought people were out to get you because they kind of were. <laughs> yes. And then right. <laughs> yeah, because the. Um... And also, all the whole time I was on the ward, I was talking about this money being stolen and I needed to get out there. And I was concerned with my family, though in some ways I was happy that I hadn't told my children anything because I thought they don't know anything. And in fact, the first 
day I was in the hospital, the person that was stealing from us actually took them out for lunch to try and find out how much they knew and stuff like that and trying to find out what the other land lies, you know. And so they didn't come and visit me in the hospital when I had the broken arm. They went out for lunch with this person. And this person even rang the ward. It's in my notes. They rang the ward and they said I wasn't to be allowed to ring my husband and he wasn't allowed to visit me because they knew. I mean, even though he had like a 10-minute memory, they knew he would be kicking up a fuss and, you know... Yeah. Would maybe He did not want me to get out of there because while I was in there him and these other people could be carrying on doing their stealing. They did manage to do their stealing. In fact, when I came out, I was trying to get this other person to listen to me and they wouldn't listen to me. And it took another eight months before they realised that I was telling the truth and the police were called in. And by which time, a lot of stuff had gone that we never get back. Right, and all of that's been legally settled and is something we've been avoiding talking about specifics of because yeah, it's because of, be of legal reasons. It, yeah, but I mean, but that's but that's fair enough. I mean, and and so yeah, the last sort of question I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? And I guess we've been sort of like <laughs> going like because what you've been when you've been busy when you say you've been busy you've been busy <laughs> becoming an activist, I guess, oh, or I like know. getting involved in. I know. I hate it in a way. In some ways, I wish I'd never been dragged into this situation because I think you know I mind life now my life is much better I could be sorting out like my flat and, and doing other things I want to do but instead I'm doing all this activism work which in a way is nothing to do with me sort of thing but now I know how can you know what I know and not act on it mm. that's right. what keeps me going and if I sometimes flag when I just think things are just not going anywhere I just you just have to go on the internet and read what people what's happened to people, and these people they have not got anybody. Some of them haven't got anyone to vouch for them. You know how would it have been if I was in that situation mm. and there was nobody? Right. I felt that fear of being there, and there is nobody is going to help and me. And an awful lot there of is people. Nobody right. is going to help me, and luckily there was. But luckily, I'm, my employer right. he could have said, "Oh, she's in the loony bin. Oh well, let's get a new manager." Well, people within the you know, system, in the kind of way that you were, they're disproportionately uh, poor, they're disproportionately marginalised in yes, lots of ways. Yes. And so they haven't got access yes. to those things that you're yes. talking about. Yeah. yeah. So, so really, I mean, I owe him everything. Mind you, it's quite funny because sometimes he's, um, like one time his relatives came round and he sort of pointed me out and he said, oh, and this is Cheryl and um, uh, we rescued her from a mental hospital. And I just think it's so I just think I could just imagine people sitting me. I'm sitting in the mental hospital going, please, sir, please give me a job, please, sir. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, it makes me laugh. Yeah, so so what are the organisations that you are with and and how can people find out more about those? Yeah, Yeah, so I'm with um, Speak Out Against Psychiatry. I came across them because I was cycling around with... I got posters on my bicycle... And my posters were sort of against ECT. I was <laughs> cycling to work with against ECT posters. And a guy, a homeless guy, cycled up behind me one day. And he said, I agree with all that. You know, I talk to anyone that stops me. He said, I agree with all that. We swapped email addresses. And then later on, 2011, he sort of emailed me and he said, oh, there's this new group, Speak Out Against Psychiatry. They're having a protest outside the Royal College of Psychiatry at five o'clock. Perhaps you'd like to go along. And I thought, oh, 
yeah, that sounds good. So this was um, July 2011. And so I went along and I'd written down my story and I thought, well, if I like the look of them, I'll tell my story, you know. Well, I did like the look of them and I heard their stories and I was amazed. And you can see them on, on the website, Speak Out Against Psychiatry website. Um, Which is speakoutagainstpsychiatry.org, I think. Dot org, yeah. yeah. You can see it there. Um and then the rest is history, really. I join them, meet up every two weeks, and we do protests and stuff like that. And, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And through that, I mean, it's amazing. One thing leads to another. Through that, I went to speak at the Intar Conference in Liverpool. You know, I speak at other things like DIY cultures. I was on the stage there. Spark. I've been, I've spoken about my experience twice with Spark, actually. I did a longer, a longer one. All right. Cool. Yeah. And there's a there is a film about me on the um, Speak Out website on uh, called um, Cheryl's story, kidnapped by psychiatry. It tells you a bit, a bit about what happened. Yeah, and then I was approached by Asylum magazine because I, I'd written several things on ECT and sent them to them. And they right. published something before, and then they approached me and said, "Would I like to co-produce?" Um, a uh, magazine, asylum magazine, right, which just I've got on in my ECT, hand. Yeah. yeah, which was like this year. So yeah, I mean, and you can find out more about asylum. Uh, there's a there's another there's a website for them which is www.asylumonline.net. Yeah, and there the tagline of this magazine is the magazine for democratic psychiatry, and that's definitely what I can get behind myself. I mean. I, like for all I've I've for all I've I've maybe presented a little bit of the case for why some people do feel that psychi- psychiatric uh, treatment can help be helpful. I definitely believe it should be starting with the patient's needs, not the not the not enforced yeah. onto anybody else. Yeah. Like this this idea that that, that, that doctors know best yeah. is very problematic. It's the old paternal and, thing that used right. to be in in um, physical health. That used right. to be you know you didn't you know you didn't answer ask questions. The doctor would tell you what to do right and, and if you, you listen to people who have got mental health issues who are campaigning that's what they're asking for they're not yeah. they're, you know they're asking for for rights they're asking for yeah. for, for for getting rid of the stigma around yeah. this kind of stuff and also and also for for them being listened to we don't yeah. listen to people yeah. who have that's the trouble. i mean the government unfortunately are listening to big charities I'm sorry to say, I don't know whether you agree or not, but uh, Rethink and Mind, unfortunately, is sort of taken over by psychiatrists and they are not, in the main, speaking for psychiatric survivors and they're not speaking... You know, really, the government needs to speak to psychiatric survivors and they ought to speak to whistleblowers as well. Well, I, th- I think those people should be should de- definitely be spoken to and listened to. I I, I definitely wouldn't personally <laughs> sign off on 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 all the criticisms of certainly mine who I've worked with in the past and hope to work with again. I know, but I think, some but I but I, 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 I agree but that there's probably a critique do... to be made of all charities. I don't think that charities because in themselves do... are automatically good. Yeah, you know, you they... have to look into why and what they do and all push, that stuff. They do push psychiatric drugs and they do push ECT. Right. Well, I mean, at EC, ECT. I'm not really very into that. being pushed anywhere, but I, I, th- I think that that the, look on their website. Right. Well, I, I, I will check it out. But I mean, <laughs> I'm, all I'm doing is not going on the record as being critical of those organisations. But that's. I know. But I, I, I absolutely approve of you being on the record, being critical of those organisations, yeah. because that's your experience, that's yes. your opinion, and it should be represented in the world. Yes. Yeah. We did hold a protest outside one of their branches, and they did object to it. Well, yeah. 
Well, people... we weren't protesting against them. We were protesting against psychiatry, but they were worried that it would be seen that we were protesting against them or we were them protesting against psychiatry. Well, their position and is... And they weren't comfortable on that. Right. It was just that it happened to be... I think we were protesting in that area because there'd been something in the newspaper about somebody who had been um, hounded mm. and taken off to a local mental hospital in that area. So that happened to be a good place because it was right by a big Sainsbury's. Right. And it just happened to be the little area. Oh, yeah, I mean... That I, was, but they didn't like it. Well, I imagine they wouldn't because, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it depends. Like, so I guess their position is... They have uh, to be careful. That is the trouble. They yeah, have they careful. have to get funding because from different funding. places. It's they have the to funding. worry about things. And also, they aren't anti-psychiatry. Just as I'm not completely anti-psychiatry, they're trying to be in, <laughs> in a position of, of psychiatry, psychology, uh, feeds in and how, how you help people with, who, have, who have, yeah, mental health uh, issues or consider themselves to have them. Mm. I mean... But but I agree, it's never as simple as this. There's all of these power structures oh, there are good involved. You know, there definitely Joanna are. Joanna Moncrief, you know. Right, well, there's a definitely. psychiatrist, you know, but their voice is not heard very much. Right, I mean, well, there's definitely, yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we don't have, we, we, we tend to have a, a set view of all of these things and, and it's that's all we're allowed to hear. And uh, so I think it's really important to hear very different experiences that people have had with these things. And and sure, I mean, I, I have no problem giving shout outs to any of these organisations, even, you know. Where... But they don't get paid for it. No, so, absolutely. You know I mean? No, I, so, I, I, and I, I haven't got funding. Right, so, you're an activist and, an acti- you know, and I, I, I believe in it. I do it activism. because I, I, I believe in it. Mm. That's why I do And you've it. had experiences that have led you so to these I conclusions, know. right? I know, yeah. yes. I have been in it. I know what happens. I know people aren't told their rights. I know people are forcibly injected against yeah, their will. That's definitely true. And I don't, you know, yeah, I know all I these things. I know you're that. treated like shit. Nobody, you know, talks to you. You know, in a normal hospital, they say to you, all right, we're just going to do this for you. And, you know, it might be a little bit painful, but they're telling you everything. In a hospital, it's not like that at all. Straight in with the drugs, don't tell you what they are. You know, you're a nobody. I mean, yeah. when I got injected, I, they stole my mobile phone and I tried to escape. When I got back to my room, this was on the Friday after they'd broken my arm on the Thursday. When I got back to my room, they'd taken my bed away and they put my mattress on the floor. And I sat on my mattress crying because my mobile was the only way I could contact my children. Right. You know, with a text, because you know what children are like, they never answer in their phones. If you try ring them from the pay phone, which you can never get the hang of anyway, you know, you're not going to get anywhere. If you can text somebody, you know, you're getting some right. contact. And they took that away from me. and Isolating um, someone from their closest people And then they injected me in the butt. They just came in. These nurses came in. They went, take these pills. And I went, no. And they said, if you don't, we're going to inject you. Mm. And I said, well, I'm not taking the pills. And they said, the injection will be worse. And then I said, you're going to kill me. Because I thought, oh, God, it's a lethal injection. They're going to kill me. And one of the nurses laughed. She went, ha, this is the NHS. And I thought, no way. I thought, would the NHS do this? No, they wouldn't do this. The NHS wouldn't do this. You know, I thought this, you know, no way I believe that. And then they injected me in the butt and I lay there and I thought, I'm going to die now. And I felt really upset. I thought, my children are not going to know the truth. They're going to get conned. But sadly, the truth is that the NHS do do that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the thing that you didn't want to believe. Yeah, you didn't want to believe what what is a much worse truth. Yeah. You're in your own home. And then all this nightmare. I mean, it's eight days. Right. It's funny. I sort of uh, I read about this woman in um, years ago called Nellie Blythe. Well, that was a fake name. And she was a journalist and she got herself 
put into a mental hospital so she could do an undercover job. And uh, so she actually wrote a story called, like, 10 Days in a Mental <laughs> Asylum or something. And I'm just thinking, oh, God, I did a, a bit of a Nelly Blythe experience there. Yeah, but days. you didn't intend to. <laughs> no. it, wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't consensual. You didn't yeah. go, right, I'm going to go undercover here. No, I would. Ne- I tell you, I would not risk going undercover. Right. <laughs> but I said to the hospital, I said, well, number one, they should have CCTV. So, some, so there's no argument about what's happened. And uh, number two, they should send someone undercover and see what goes on. They go, oh, no, you know, uh, staff rights and we can't be doing things like that. What about patient rights? Yeah, yeah I know. That's what I said. Yeah. No, fair enough. <laughs> when, I, when I'm rounding up these conversations, I often say it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you. And it has personally been a pleasure to talk to you, but it's not been a pleasure to hear your experiences. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think it's going to be boring. <laughs> I think it's going to be a kind of a mix of shocking and uh, controversial. I mean, and that's that's a, a perfectly great episode. I think well, it's all true, right? It's all exactly. True. But you wouldn't believe it, right? Well, you I mean, believe it. Well, I believe you. I believe your word, story. Yeah, every word is true. Yeah. No, I mean, I and I, I absolutely believe your experience. Yeah. The, the 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 last thing I ask my guests to do is to to say goodbye to the audience. Yeah. Oh. So. However you want to say goodbye, I guess. Well, I'll say goodbye. And, well, I don't know. Well, you've heard my story. I'll tell you it's all true. And for goodness sake, we need the general public to actually realise what's going on. And it's only them that can help. It's only them that can help. It's just like with the votes for women. It was only when the men got involved that the women got the vote and same thing with slavery. It's only when the white folk got involved that the slavery was stopped. And it's the same with this. We need the general public to get involved and stop this happening. Okay. Well, bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so that conversation happened a little while ago. And so I emailed Cheryl to tell her that it was coming out and ask her if she had any extra things to plug. And she asked me to plug the latest government electroshock e-petition, which is e-petition number 104681, which you can find on petition.parliament.uk. I'll put a link to that and to many other things in the show notes on the SoundCloud page. I think it's kind of clear from the conversation that whilst I find Cheryl's testimony really valuable and important and I think it should be heard and we should totally consider and think about the stuff that she's saying, my view on mental health is a little bit different. The way I see things and the the nuances of how it all works are different and that's fine. There There is room in the world for lots of different opinions and it's kind of important to listen to them all and choose which ones we agree with and I think that there's some truth in many different things that can often seem to to conflict but actually somewhere below it all is a kind of similar route and that a lot of our our thoughts do chime and a lot of our opinions are similar even though we have some differences around the nuances of it. As I say in the episode I've worked with mind I have no reason to have any problems with Mind. In fact, Spark London is doing another crossover with Mind in Haringey, another night of stories about mental health, which, regardless of anything else, mental health is something we don't talk about enough, and we don't 
talk about the lives or the experiences or the stories that people have about mental health because they're not shared because it's not safe often to share them and it sparks crossover with mind in Haringey on the 9th of November at the Hackney Attic it will be a safe place for people to talk about their experiences of mental health issues and it would be really great if you came along and had a listen to their stories there should be an open mic section as well so if you have a story that you'd like to tell about your own mental health experiences then you can do that at that night the theme of the night is multicultural minds and so we hope to have lots of different cultures talking about their different experiences of mental health issues my experiences of mental health uh, things that I've talked about in my solo show What About the Men Mansplaining Masculinity You'll be able to see that solo show on the 19th of November at the Dog Star in Brixton Doors open at 7.30 My show is at 8 o'clock and then following my show at 9.15 there is the brilliant AJ McKenna doing her spoken word show called Howl of the Banty Not related to mental health particularly at all but this Friday At the Hackney Attic, there's Tragic Autumn, which is a night of stand-up tragedy, which is the other night that I run. You can get the tickets from the Hackney Attic website for that, £5 in advance, £7 on the door. You can check out Stand Up Tragedy on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy. You can check out me on Twitter at GooseFat101. And you can check out Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. All things Getting Better Acquainted are at www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk and you can search for Getting Better Acquainted on whatever site you use to access podcasts. So remember, there are lots of ways of getting better acquainted.